Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the final part of Changes the Mother Mother miniseries with me, Annie McManus. All right, before we get into the conversation at hand, I have some big news. We are bringing changes live. This is so exciting to me. As someone who has played gigs all my life in front of audiences playing records, this is a whole different type of gig. This is a gig of people sat down and listening to a conversation happening live. So it's all new. It's all exciting. And it's something I've been really looking forward to kind of just dipping my toe into. So our first ever changes live is happening as part of the last word festival at the roundhouse in north london and my guest will be the outrageously inspiring hassan akkad hassan was a refugee you know when you see those videos and pictures of people desperate people trying to escape their countries war-torn countries and getting on dinghies paying people illegally to transport them across various different seas and oceans hassan was that person he escaped from syria to turkey and got all the way to the uk claimed asylum here and his adventure didn't end there. He volunteered as a porter for the NHS during COVID and managed to make a huge difference to immigrants working for the NHS. So he has an incredible perspective on the marginalised of society, on those people that are consistently used and abused by the media and taken for granted by so many people. And I'm really interested to speak to him, a man who has suffered and navigated incredible change, geographical, psychological, and he's going to be sitting on that stage with me at the Roundhouse. So do come along if you happen to find yourself in London. Tickets are available now, and we'll put a link to them actually in the show notes for this episode. Right, on with the show. It has been such a pleasure to speak with other writers during this mad period of releasing my first novel and to go into some of the bigger themes I was thinking about whilst writing it. Missing people, single motherhood, grief. And the last conversation is a big one. My guest on this week's episode of Changes is a man called Kieran Thapar. And I was introduced to Kieran via a man called Jamar Jonas. Now, Jamar Jonas has been a guest on Changes in the past. I wanted to speak to someone who was affected by knife crime and uh, Jamar Jonas's brother Michael was awfully tragically murdered uh, in a park in Penge in South London when Jamar was only 15 and Michael was I think 17. Jamar is hugely impressive. He's been actively campaigning against knife crime and youth violence in South London and beyond. And all the way through from when his brother died, he has had Kieran as a mentor. So during my conversation with Jamar on changes, he told me about Kieran. Fam, my mentor means the world to me. Are you nuts? I will say that with my whole chest. Without my mentor, listen, my mentor, yeah, Kieran Frapper, yeah, that brother there, yeah, that guy there is a legend, yeah. People do not understand the importance of conversation. I swear to you, people don't understand that one conversation could possibly change someone's life. And I feel like the addition of a mentor, yeah, to my life personally, it's a blessing, isn't it? Because it's like, You've got someone that's not your parents and not your brethren's that you can chat to and you can flow in and out of that professional and informal level of conversation. Having a mentor almost helps you figure yourself out. So that man, Kieran, is going to be speaking to me today. As a youth worker, he has mentored Jamar and plenty of other boys and young men in South London for years. And now he's written about his experiences doing that in this incredible book called Cut Short, Youth Violence, Loss and Hope in the City. The book follows Jamar 
two other young guys, Dimitri and Carl, as they navigate this small stretch of land between Brixton and Elephant and Castle. It's the borough of Lambeth. And they basically attempt to survive in the face of an epidemic of poverty, violence and systemic racism. Cut Short can be kind of a brutal read, but it's also one with a real backbone of positivity and optimism. Over the course of the book, Kieran provides a blueprint for the ways in which the conditions that he depicts so unflinchingly can be changed by policy, by institutional shifts and by the effort of individuals. And you only have to speak to people like Jamar Jonas to understand how transformative the kind of youth work that Kieran performs can be. So I wanted to speak to Kieran. I wanted to speak to him anyway, because what he's writing about is so important. I am saying that Cut Short is the most important book a Londoner can read this year. But it's also quite similar to Mother Mother in a way that it talks about that big theme of transition from boyhood to manhood. Something that TJ and Mother Mother is going through very viscerally for much of the book. And I knew that Kieran would have loads to say about that exact phenomenon and the ways it's put under the magnifying glass by the horror harsh reality that a load of the kids he works with are living through. When I've spoken to him in the past, Kieran has always considered himself first and foremost a youth worker. So I wanted to start by asking him if now that he's released a book, is that still the case or if his scope has changed a little bit? Welcome to the podcast, Kieran Thapar. No, I don't think it's the case anymore. I think now I've written the book, I'm starting to reconceive of my professional identity and have a bit more pride about the writing. I think there's a in youth work, in community life, there's a lot of scepticism and cynicism about journalism and writing often, which I think always held me back from fully embracing the writer title. But now I've written the book and realised actually I'm really proud to, to be a writer and, and also I'm really keen to attach that writing identity more and more onto my youth work. So like teach writing and use writing and language as a, as a way of connecting with young people. So I'd say 50-50 now, I'm equally proud to, to do both, yeah. And where does that cynicism that you speak of, like where does that come from within the worlds that you do your youth work? I think a lot of different places, but one of the obvious ones is the way that the British media has historically demeaned and misrepresented different communities, poorer communities, ethnic minority communities. And that's been the focus of my youth work. So... It depends what context it's in, but in a youth work space or a community space, if I say, if the word journalist comes up, that generates a different response to the word writer, I think. Because writer can incorporate spoken word, it can incorporate rap, it can, like, yeah, writer can be like, yeah. you could be a poet, whereas a journalist is a journalist. And I've never really identified with the word journalist, and I still don't, I don't think I ever will. I write journalism, but yeah, I think that the cynicism comes from the fact that a lot of journalists and you know it's easy to make this mistake I've made this mistake in the past but they see the story before the human and and I think that yeah often that becomes exploitative so it's over over years that's set in and I think it comes comes from that among other things well I mean there's such a mountain of things I want to speak to you about and ask you about but obviously the reason why why I wanted you to come on this series is is because of your book Cut Short which we spoke about in the intro but before we get to the actual book tell me about how you made the change to be a youth worker so I am I was doing my master's at LSE in political theory which is quite like an abstract subject but nonetheless one that was like really stimulating and I picked that subject because I'd spent several years trying different industries and and ultimately being quite disillusioned with the world I guess and really wanting to commit to contributing to society in a meaningful way and I, and I picked that master's as a way of having that space to think and I'm you know fortunate that my parents supported it and I was able to live at home while studying that and I was doing that master's and I I was already trying to think about practical ways I could like put all these things I was learning into use practically in someone's life or society and I just happened to walk through a volunteering fair at LSE and walked past a stall where you could sign up to be a student mentor and I just did it but that's actually the inception point of the rest of my life thus far I think because that's what led me to meet Jamal Jonas who was 12 at the time he's now 19 and I, I guess kind of the main character of Cut Short who you know very well as well that was the first moment you know and I, I think the combination of me studying political philosophy 
to an extent that was like very, very intense, like spending every day reading long hours and like thinking about what my opinions were and, and what my responsibility was and and then going and spending time with him and just cracking jokes and trying to connect with him about music and talk about his experience at school and in Brixton and stuff. Like that, that twofold experience, it just energized me. For the first time in my life, I was like, this is what I need to be doing professionally. So I just applied to a bunch of jobs off the back of that and also sort of took on some other mentoring, which I document in the book at a local community center when I moved to Brixton. And it, yeah, it kind of went from there. What preceded that? Like you seem to have a kind of innate desire to give back. You know, there's a kind of public service there. You you talk about the word responsibility. Where does that come from, do you think? Yeah, I think that undoubtedly the main driver of that in terms of my roots is my parents. My dad's a doctor, he's a GP, and my mum is a nurse. And I've just spent the whole of my life coming home to the dinner table with stories about who they helped. That was a normal process growing up. And it's not like I always was like, okay, therefore I'm going to be someone that's going to, you know, try my own version of this. But I think the the space that I had at LSE to really think about it and channel that energy, it comes from from parents. But I think I, I was, I've been thinking about this more recently and I've actually only come to the realisation since finishing Cut Short and having a bit of distance from it that I think during that during that year there was quite a lot of family disruption for the first time in my life and so I think now again this is a super recent realization I think now that that year was not only me sort of discovering my purpose like that but it was also a bit of me trying to look for a new community and look for a new family not not look for a new family but get a sense of stability from a new community because I think that there was a lot of disruption that year so it was coming from a few different places. It's funny, isn't it? The more you talk about your processes and your motivations, the more you learn. I found that with Mother Mother, like the amount of conversations I've had and people really want to try and find meaning in your motivations for writing a book. And I've gone from being like, no, I just wrote it to now being like, well, actually, there maybe was a lot of unconscious, you know, this and this and this. And it's just funny, isn't it? The more you kind of ruminate on it, you do find meaning, unconscious stuff that you didn't even know was going on at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, so we know how you got into youth working. We know kind of about the kind of innate stuff that you had around you as a child that kind of made you want to do that. What changes in your life led you to, to, to actually deciding to write a book? So I have always written, since I was 21, 20, I've written a diary, an intense daily diary, almost daily diary. I suffered from depression at university and had a really difficult year, retook it and turned to this diary as just like a random attempt to try and make sense of my thoughts, etc. And it became like a bit of an addiction. And then I started writing a blog at uni and then I managed to get a few little bits commissioned in websites and blogs and stuff. And so going into becoming a youth worker and doing community work and mentoring and then getting a job working in schools, mentoring students, that was the next step of off the back of the masters. All of that was also aligned with me in the background, thinking about how I could write about just some of the injustices I was seeing and also document the success I was having in my youth work and and education work. So in 2018, I'd been thinking like that and doing bits and bobs of writing, writing about youth violence, but also writing about educational inequality, about music, different things. And I have to give credit to to Matt Turner, my agent, who basically just emailed me, took me for a drink and was like, I've read everything you've written. You must have a book here somewhere. And it was that moment that I started thinking I'd obviously always, as a writer, dreamt of writing a book, but it wasn't a tangible idea. So that was the moment that it became practical as a reality. And how did you go about the writing of it? Because, you know, as you say, these are real lives, these are, these are real experiences. So how did you navigate that aspect of it? So that, that summer, the summer of 2018, which is how the prologue and the introduction of Cut Short unfold, it's in this very intense, hot, kind of quite infamous in good and bad ways summer that everyone talk. you know so many of my mates will be like oh, 2018 summer football world cup super hot it was a vibe and everyone was partying and 
in some ways I was partying too. Like I was enjoying the sun and like was socializing a lot, but in my job and in my community relationships, it was almost like this alternate dimension happening in the same streets where young people I knew were being ran down every day and, and were talking about this and, and were scared. So not only did the book idea practically come from my agent, Matt, just like prompting me to think about it. It was also from this time where I was just like, I've, I've had enough of these two disparate realities confusing me. Like I need to try and make sense of how, how is this happening that everyone on the one hand seems to be really happy and then another community seems to be the opposite of happy and really suffering the way that the book starts with the prologue and the introduction really trying to give you a sense of the urgency and that disparity between different people's experiences of London. That's the starting point. And then it just made sense to rewind the clock to the first time I met Jamar and, you know, the first time I decided to step into this world as a youth worker or as a mentor and build it up chronologically. So that was the general first idea was like, okay, snapshot into how I'm literally feeling right now when the book idea came about yeah and then let me take someone through my journey as well as these characters journeys as we all learn and experience life in this in this world so a lot of the cut short is trying to allow the reader to learn alongside me while I succeed and fail at different things and do you mind going can we go over a few of those things that you that you cover in the book I would like the listener to get a really kind of good idea of just the reality of the facts the cold hard facts of what you discovered in the book because um, that's why the book is so good you have this very personal perspective of, of of three young lives and then you have the macro you have these kind of staggering statistics that are terrifying that are kind of backed up by your interviews and, and discussions so if we start with the Met Police and the kind of institutional racism there. What did you discover in your kind of exploration of that section? So in the book, that policing chapter starts with me being at the community centre where I volunteered for, for five years. Um, but that was at the early stages of that process. And I was there and I talk about this in the book about seeing the police raid the centre from the inside of the centre. You know, as opposed to being someone that was on the street that might have just walked past it and been like, oh yeah, that's just London. I was inside the building when it happened. And so suddenly like I, I could just see from the perspective of the staff and the young people there, just how harmless that afternoon was actually. Um, I'm not, I'm not denying that, you know, there might've been occasions over the years where places in Brixton needed lots of police to, to control things. I, potentially that might be true. But in that moment, there was no need for three cars or three vehicles to, to turn up and, and and do what they did. And that, that's sort of trying to capture that at the beginning of that chapter is what I was trying to get was like, I, I was just blown away by how over the top it was. And it just would never have happened where I grew up or in another community. That That would have never happened, you know. And so that complacency of the police that that normalized power where they weren't just speaking down to the young people they were speaking down to to Tony who's the the character of the, you know my mentor in the book who who I was developing a huge amount of respect for at the time and and now you know he's, he's sort of like an uncle figure to me now and and who runs the community center sorry yeah and they were speaking down to him as well and yeah it that's the window into it really and then I start sort start sort of obviously having more and more conversations with young people more conversations with different people in the community and you start to uncover especially as a youth worker where you're holding a safe space and you're you're holding conversations that young people feel like they can express their experiences in you start to realize how normalized this is and and but from my perspective you know it shouldn't be normalized it it, it is not normalized in my life so that was one fundamental difference between how I think most of British society experiences policing and in this case a South London predominantly black British community experiences it and we should say that the book covers a, a kind of an area of South London which also kind of adds to the book's intensity I think because it's just like it's kind of zooming in on one area and really looking at every different facet that affects that area it's really powerful yes so it's a stretch of land between Brixton Elephant and Castle I was not only volunteering at this community centre in Brixton 
and mentoring Jamar in Brixton. So I had a sense of what Brixton was like from the perspective of those who had lived there for a long time and were experiencing it in a certain way, different to a lot of my mates who were moving into Brixton and just consuming the party lifestyle instead. Very, very different experiences. So I was getting that insight, but then I got a job working for a charity called The Access Project, which place graduates, myself included in this case, in different state schools across the country as mentors to young people applying to university, basically. And I was placed in a school in Elephant and Castle. And so basically what that did, and I, for the rest of the book, kind of explore it in this way, is it put me at either end of this stretch of land that has a huge amount of history and a huge amount of poverty and change and just the whole ecosystem of things going on. And actually then when you break it down, I was kind of traveling between this school and this community center that existed a walk away from one another, but they might as well have been on either sides of a war in different countries, you know, like really different. And the way that one community would talk about the other area was like it was in Ireland or Scotland, you know, really far away in a completely different land that we can never talk about or visit. And explain that a bit more for me, Kieran, like the idea of these two places right sitting right next to each other but feeling feeling foreign why is that i think it's really complex and there's lots of areas that you know that i don't i don't have personal experience of and i haven't necessarily um put in the book but from, from what i can make out one of them is that there is a serious very very serious and very real territorialism that you as a young man if you're trying to navigate an area where you live where all of the influences and all the incentives are telling you to defend what you have and protect what you have that local experience of your home and your community and your friends which is stitched together by your school by the youth club by where you hang out that ends up tightening and tightening and tightening and I think the more injustice and the more over policing and the more neglect that sets in over decades which has happened the more that tightens and tightens and i think that what you have between different communities in london even even within these tiny stretches of land is you have that protectionism it's like people trying to survive and i think if you're young and it becomes even more extreme Let's let's get on to education then, because I mean, I learned so much when I read this book and I've lived in London for 20 years. And the one thing I, I was most interested in was just the way that you break down the education system and how it is, it treats people unfairly and, and the academy school thing specifically, and this point system that I did not know about. Can you break that down for me? Just just bullet point it. Like what what is the point system and yeah, how does it work? Academies are the way that most, well, an increasing number over the last 10 years of state schools have been ran. A really headline way of putting it is that they're ran like a market, like a business. So they kind of compete. There's a, there's a lot of independence. There's certain incentives that reward being outwardly very successful and, and that's fine. But I think that there are serious repercussions of that when a lot is focused on exam results and a lot is focused on certain metrics that end up, I think, underserving the young people that can't toe the line. So when I've worked in schools, the most shocking and weird aspects of how students are valued, especially when you take into the fact that the students that are the most vulnerable are typically those who end up like losing out from the system, are the fact that there is this ranking system where you have certain students that are the ones that I was working with as part of my job, applying to university, highly academic, you know, inevitably going to end up in a, in a good university. They get constantly rewarded. They get celebrated in assemblies. They get their pictures get put on the wall and they end up potentially going to the university as the first person in their family to do so. And that's great. But in order to 
it seems like to me in order to have created a system that allows that to happen there has to be another end of the spectrum so there are people losing out as well and my argument in the book is that one portion of those people losing out the most are the boys that you see ending up perpetrating in violence they're the ones that end up being excluded and they're the ones that aren't captured by any metric of success in school even if they might be actually very intelligent and and really have sparked and then there's a really fascinating parallel when you go and speak to this lady called dr karen graham when you're talking about the prison system because that's another thing you do is, is you you go and do work within the prisons and i was fascinated by that idea of how the patterns of exclusion and I don't know. It, it just it's like the academy schools and the kind of way that the kids are punished, the isolation rooms, these kind of point systems, all of these things. It's like from the ages of kind of five and six, they are told that they are just not worthy. They're at the bottom of every point system. It's reinforced at home. And there's a point in, in these kids lives where their school, their education life stops being about education like the the teacher and that that relationship is not an educational one it's just constant you know punishment it's just constant exclusion and then you get used to that and and then you know if you do go to prison it's kind of it's a place that is recognizable in terms of how the system works i'm really paraphrasing really badly <laughs> sure no it's not bad at all that that's exactly it me. i think so Dr. Karen Graham, that conversation I had with her that ended up making it into the book completely blew me away after I remember finishing the, the phone call, having in, interviewed her and being like, oh, I was expecting parallels. But the way that she framed it to me, had I'd never thought about it in, in those terms. And specifically what I'm talking about is the way that she says that. So talking about the parallels between schools and prisons and the way that certain students and certain people in society are treated in those different institutions and the way that certain behaviors are punished and hidden from the rest of students in things like isolation rooms or people being parked or people being separated the way that that is actually invisible or not not even a registered experience by most teachers and and pupils it's only really experienced by the students that are experiencing it and they're being parked and they're being sent to yeah. these rooms in exactly the same way that if you haven't been in a prison, you have no idea what it's like in there. This is what me and my work in prisons taught me. Like it, These realities that are super real for the people inside of them are completely abstract for everyone else. And it yeah. allows... And it, these people these people are voiceless. They, they yeah, have exactly. no way of kind of being heard. Yeah. Exactly. Um, can, can I read a bit, Kieran? Yeah, of course. So I just want to read this bit about Graham. I don't know when I'm going to stop because it's so good, but let me just do this. So Graham has interviewed hundreds of incarcerated men. She grew up in Birmingham in a community where a disproportionate number of people ended up in prison. She visited family members in prison as a small child. When Graham started teaching in a local prison, she was required to complete administrative tasks, filing the educational histories of each prisoner. She spoke to prisoners about their life stories. She began to make sense of their collective memories and found an almost universal experience expressed in their answers. That of social exclusion at school from a young age. One man had recalled to Graham how in primary school he was forced to sit outside the principal's office in silence all day instead of going to lessons. On the occasions he was allowed outside at break, the teacher drew a square with chalk on the playground floor which he couldn't leave. This is her speaking. Apart from this being horrific, I was immediately taken to people to people being in prison and being led out to walk around a square yard. There were a number of really clear, not even metaphors, but direct parallel experiences, she said. And she heard many stories of this nature. Prisoners being subjected to hardline control methods since their earliest memories of interacting with figures of authority. She argues that the school system treats dissenters like the prison system does, as unworthy, disposable products of their own making, rather than systemic failure and demonisation. So Kieran, you are at the very nucleus of that in your work for the charity in this school in Lambeth, in that you were being given... The, the kind of high achieving students but then you did something else didn't you you tried to go and work with those students that were being excluded tell me a bit about that experience yeah so my day job the the job I was being paid for was to work for this charity that mentored academic students to apply to university so I was on the one hand having daily conversations with they might have still been 
you know, classed as living in poverty or experiencing hardship, but it was in the in the context of the school, they were generally the more academic, more high achieving students. And because I was doing mentoring with Jamar, because I was doing mentoring at the community centre in Brixton, I was also simultaneous to this job having almost daily conversations in some sense with the boys that in their equivalent schools were the ones at the other end of the spectrum. And so you'd hear this. So I started to basically get a sense of the each end of the spectrum. And so I'd started a discussion group at the community centre and was having these conversations about what it was like to basically be at the bottom of these point systems and to what it was like to be in an isolation room all day and how that makes you feel as a, as a, a young person, in this case, a, a young man or a boy. Very innocent questions that these boys might wear a face of you know hard line not being phased but actually in these spaces opening up about the fact that they feel very vulnerable and alone in the in these classrooms so I basically set up a discussion group at the school with some of the boys who were at the bottom end of the point system and was basically just trying to trying to make an effort to understand that perspective and and do what I could to prevent them from staying at the bottom or at worst getting excluded which ends up happening and and can you tell us this volunteer work that you do I mean we see it in the book we you can see how these pupils kind of with your respect and with your trust kind of open up and blossom and you can see them being bolstered by these sessions like what do you want people to know when it comes to volunteer work and youth work about what it does to young boys, because you have this unique perspective of being right there in the middle of it and seeing how it can change people. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think I, I managed to find my, my own version of volunteering and, and the, the best purest version of what I could do to contribute, which all goes back to that original conversation I had with Jamal, which was us connecting over music, us joking around us just chatting about you know his experiences and being men and being young men and 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 connecting because of our shared life experiences and the difference clear differences in our life experiences and so from that point i you know i expanded to doing group sessions in the community center then i expanded to doing them in the school and then since then that's kind of my bread and butter now i'm able to host these group sessions or one-to-one mentoring sessions with any young person but I think with the disenfranchised boys and young men they're sort of my bread and butter that's my version of that and I think that the impact that simply providing disenfranchised excluded young people that space to not feel judged to not feel shame to just be respected spoken to like a human it sounds like a simple thing, but in some parts of the world, parts of the country, some experiences of young people, that doesn't exist, that space. It doesn't exist. It, it especially doesn't exist when schools aren't allowing those spaces to exist, when youth clubs are being shut down, when prisons are strapped for cash and are able to provide rehabilitative services. You know, all of these different reasons mean that there's barely any space, even if it's just half an hour, to have just a, a breath and a, I'm suffering a lot right now. I'm going through a lot. And that's why I'm acting out. Can I chat about this? Can I just say a few sentences about it without being talked down to or shouted at? That's what I found to be the, the real gold of those sessions. Because you just see that you see the bravado just fall away after a few weeks. And it's just it's just guys chatting about navigating through life and I think that that was my version of of having an impact and offering them that space and trying to learn about it more and and have a greater impact and I think I guess as an extension of that my advice to anyone listening that wants to get into volunteering or mentoring is to is to find your own version of that because not everyone's going to do what I've done but everyone has a way of connecting with someone else and I think starting humble and mentoring one person or or spending time with one person that might benefit from your company or support that's the way to do it and I think the final thing on that is which I say all the time when I talk about mentoring or volunteering is don't go into it being the helper it's going into it being the learner and that's 50 50 and I, I 
again, I, I've, I'm not, I've definitely not always got things right and I feel like I've learned a lot along the way, but I do stand by the fact, I think from the very beginning of this, I started mentoring Jamar to try and help as well as learn. It was always a 50-50 thing. And I think, yeah, it's really important that people do that basically. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Let's move on to gentrification. Uh, again, fascinating to be able to see the effects of gentrification from the people who are in an area already that is being gentrified, from a people who, as you say, value their community space so highly where that is everything to them for different reasons than it would be to someone just moving in. What did you learn in your explorations of that? So there's, there's, there's two sides to it because a lot of being real, a lot of young people see the changes happening in their communities and, and, and say, I like this. I like these new things. I like these new parks. I've heard that lots of times. Playgrounds, coffee shops. Yeah, like yeah, those yeah, flats yeah. look really nice. I like walking past them yeah. now. Um, yeah. I'd say that as a minority, though, uh, from my conversations. And, and it was rarely, it was rarely without also, you know, um, qualifying it with saying that but I can I can't go to that cafe or I think in particular with the with the the boys and young men I'm talking about those that are really at risk of exclusion from school or go to a pupil referral unit so they don't even go to mainstream school those that feel really safe in a youth club so those that might not feel safe at home or on the street those young people that demographic of young person they're getting judged they feel like they're getting judged the whole time at any time they're stepping out in public space you know, whether it's someone clutching a handbag tighter, whether it's someone not acknowledging them or smiling at them. I definitely think race plays a role in this. I think the way that young black men are stereotyped and demeaned by wider British society plays a role in this. So I think that that is worth saying here. But similarly, I, I think if you're a socially excluded young person across the board, there is a, a, a feeling, a, an experience of judgment that comes anyway that gentrification and the sudden arrival of a lot, a lot of people who potentially judge you or keep a distance from you, that creates an experience that is very negative. And I think that that's what I found in a lot of conversations. The book itself is called Cut Short, Youth Violence, Loss and Hope in the City. And, uh, you know, we have to talk about the violence aspect and this kind of idea, which again, you paint really vivid pictures of how this constant presence of danger in a young man's life can manifest, be it just trying to go down the shops and get milk and get a knife pulled on you, be it being in the youth centre and having people running in with knives and, you know, the extreme switches in, in, you know, in how your day can just turn around like that at any point. How does living like that affect a, a young man? So I think that the, the best way of talking about this is through the character of Carl in the book, the three young men are Jamar, Dimitri, who I haven't actually talked about, but he's supporting me with my work in schools and he's now at university doing doing really well. And then the third character is Carl, who's a, a fictional character based on sort of real people's experiences. He is that character that is experiencing that constant lack of security in the book. When I first meet him, he's a happy 14-year-old, but there is a descent that a lot of boys at that age go through when they're not supported at school, when they're not necessarily supported at home, 
by a stable father figure, when they're not being encouraged by or feeling valued by figures of authority in society like the police or teachers. And then they're also having to deal with the inheritance of territorial feuds that have taken place in generations before them or elders before them that they actually don't they don't have a choice about you know if they're living in an area so you have all these layers of reasons why someone like Carl as it shows in the book basically without any ability to control it or prevent it descends into this daily experience of of having to protect himself and survive and I'd say the main thing is that it's not allowing someone like that to be a human. It's not allowing someone like that to live a normal life by not supporting them properly. If we're saying that we're one of the most progressive or the most progressive society in the world, but we're still going to let young people have that experience and not really listen to them when they try and tell us about it, either at school or in music or whatever, then... Yeah, I just think it, it speaks volumes for the way that the country's run if it's if, if that experience is allowed to, to take place. And I think it's some of the words that I guess come to mind are exhaustion, you know, trauma. And another thing I really want to get across here, and I've said it before, is that so a lot of a lot of young men, when Jamal says this a lot, and I think it's really good when he talks about it in terms of being accurate, is that for these guys, it's really real. He'll say it's really real. And I think it sounds obvious and it sounds simple, but it's it's not that simple because for people like us, it's not real. It's abstract. These are ideas. These are words that we're des- we're describing. But the actual visceral experience of feeling like you might die every day as a fourteen or fifteen year old, what is that doing to your ability to connect in school? What is that doing with your ability to behave at home or speak to police politely or whatever? You know, so it's exhausting and it's also I think just impossible, which is why spaces like youth clubs spaces like schools can be potentially i think life-changing for them if if they're ran right kieran how do you want this book to change people's perspective i think it depends on the audience and who's reading it i think if it's someone who is familiar or has lived experience of things in the book i'd like for them to feel like there's on some level a voice for them or, or a story that is representing them or leveraging a voice like theirs so I I think that's really important to do that for those that don't have don't live in London or aren't necessarily familiar with the themes or whatever it's just building empathy really it's building empathy and I think building empathy through the stories and allowing you to feel for and be on the side of the characters you know between these characters you have a pretty big spectrum of different experiences that if you don't have those stories told to you in an affectionate, in an accurate way, you would otherwise just basically see the mugshots on a, on a headline in the newspaper and, and potentially leave your opinion to form based on that if you've got no other way of learning about it. But I'd like for this story to bring to life these characters, bring to life these experiences in a, in a humane, in a compassionate way, and therefore build empathy that way. And then off the back of that, give you the tools to make arguments you know here are the statistics here here's how it works here's how you can potentially make an impact in your community you know it's like building empathy and then allowing you to act on it as well practically and i think that's one of the things about the book that as a reader i appreciated so much was there is so much loss and there is so much despair and frustration when you read about the reality of the system that these guys are are, are kind of growing up into but there is kind of a framework that you provide us for, you know, a solution. And yeah, you can't give all the answers, but there is this feeling of hope, A, through the boys' journeys, through how they have ended up, you know, as a result of the support that they've had, but also through your actions and the kind of idea of us being able to, everyone, as you said earlier, being able to to do something that is, you know, bespoke to them, unique to them and, and, and the way they work and the way they live, but everyone can do something. And it's a really kind of, it's impossible to read the book without feeling a glimmer of hope. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think it's. <laughs> I realise whenever whenever I talk about the book and whenever I talk about my work, it's serious. It's serious stuff. So I'm here talking serious business, right? And I'm like arguing, and I'm I'm trying to relay these 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 serious issues. But it's worth saying that ninety five percent of the time that I'm spending doing youth work like this is like 
laughter and progress and and you know like a lot, a lot of the time is is that there's there's a lot of and in the book obviously you see there's moments of humor and comedy and and us coming together and talking and sharing and so thank yeah i'm glad that that sense of hope was really important and that's why it's in the subtitle actually the original subtitle didn't have the word hope in it but once i'd written the book and i was like it, it, what's the point of telling these stories if if we don't try and if it just regurgitates this negative cycle of violence and of loss, then what's the point of doing it? Because it's just reinforcing the same reality. But I, I'd like to think that, yeah, the, the, not only solutions and what we can do, but also just like if it becomes the fabric of, if this book becomes like the fabric of how young people are talked about and within that fabric, you have heroes like Jamar, Dimitri and Carl, then for me, that's a win. Like that's these blueprints for, you know, young people being successful. That's that's what we need more of. So that's the solution as well. But I'm glad that came across. Thank you. Yeah. And the other thing that comes across is how you are in such a unique position. You know, you often get books, academic books about society, about, you know, political theory, all these things. And your unique place and how you sit is as a bridge. You know, and, you know, as you, we've even discovered in this conversation, you know, you're, you're the bridge between, you know, the, the people who move into Brixton for a party and to go clubbing and the, and the people who are in the community centres. But you're also a bridge between the person in the school and the people in the community centre and a bridge between the authorities and the people who are in the school. So it's kind of you're acting all this time as, as the kind of as the person in the middle seeing both extremes and bringing them together uh, was there any point in your experience where you felt overwhelmed being in the middle of it all yeah constantly constantly and I'm only really recovering from it now to be honest so you know I, I felt a responsibility in all of these conversations about the book to say yeah this nearly finished me this book you know like the 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 amount of pressure I put on myself and responsibilities I took on I'm really proud of it I think the book documents it honestly and I think it yeah I'm proud of it and I'm glad I've done it there's no regrets but in this line of work in youth work in social work in care you know in, in these frontline positions there is not enough support for people and I don't think it's it's not valued enough these jobs are not valued enough and therefore I mean financially that's one conversation about whether you're comfortable, whether, you know, you're financially comfortable enough to be doing these jobs. That's one conversation, whether youth workers are paid well enough, teachers, etc. But I think in terms of just being supported psychologically and supported to do this stuff as well, I've learned the hard way, not too hard because I feel like I've got through it, but I've learned, you know, really that you have to look after yourself as well. And so, yeah, uh, often overwhelmed. I think the pandemic it was a blessing and a curse because it allowed me, it was really grueling to go through that process of writing this book, mostly during lockdown and like going bonkers along with everyone else, but also trying to make this story. But then it was the blessing in that it, it did give me that space to sort of actually sit up and be like, whoa, Kieran, you need to, you need to look after yourself, mate. Come on. And that's, there's a quote in there that from Tony who suffers from, from, illness towards the end of the book which was a really disruptive period of fair lots of different people there's a quote in there from him where he was like you need to you need to make sure you don't burn out mate because then you'll be good to no one you know and it really really stuck with me at the time because it's like yeah. if I want to be having an impact if I want to be continuing to thrive in my life yeah what's yeah. the point of letting this destroy me you know so it's about finding the balance yeah. and I think that's important basically is what I'm trying to say yeah absolutely let me ask you one last question before I let you go Kieran since writing the book and since people have heard that of the book's existence and people in the authorities and that kind of thing is there anything I don't know what you can and can't tell me but has anything happened like has it enacted any change yet like it's out now so people can go and read it has it enacted any kind of tangible change in its existence so far yeah lots so i think one of the big things which for me is is really has always been important is that the in particular the three main you know jamal dimitri and carl the three main young people in it their lives are thriving you know they are like daily inspiration for me and i'm so proud of that and the books allowed them to have something to feel, feel proud of to feel like they've got a voice etc to, to kind of 
have a livelihood as well you know to, to to work and be active every day talking about their experiences teaching people and then yeah we've we've partnered with quite a wide range of different organizations to, to put this out and which i'm going to be you know i'm going to really try and make an effort over the next year to engage as much as possible in communities across the uk partially with the help of, of charities and other organizations i think a lot of the feedback already whether people have read it or not or just read the synopsis is that a lot of the kind of tone that's come back is finally we have a book that tells people what it's like to be a youth worker and tells people what it's like that you know to be to be up against these barriers so i hope that that just continues and and yeah there's there's some really exciting things in the pipeline which i can't really they're not tangible and and they're not quite finished yet but i'm really hopeful for this summer and beyond um for what it for what it can affect change with so yeah well, on reading the book, you know, I've I've spoke to you this about this before, but I, it has this incredible power in the way that it's written and in the way that you lay out the information in the kind of rhythm of the read, that the further you get into the book, it feels kind of like an optical illusion in that, you know, when you stare at a picture for ages and then suddenly you just see this shape emerging. That's how it feels when you read Cut Short. You're kind of reading and reading. And by the end of it, you can just see the whole picture so clearly of kind of what is wrong and toxic with with the society that we live in and it's so powerful for that and anyone reading like any sort of politician anyone in authority it is indisputable like there's no way you could not read that and think fuck we've got to pay youth workers more we've got to invest in that we've got to fund youth centers all of that so i mean i really hope that it fucking makes a change because it it, it it you know i can't see how it couldn't um so yeah congratulations to you what an amazing achievement honestly thank you very much and congrats to you too big thank you to kieran thapar for coming on the show cut short is out now i cannot recommend it enough buy it for your friends buy it for your family buy it for anyone you know who is worried and feeling helpless about the fact that there is a whole other war going on a kind of secret war happening on the same streets that we walk on every day where young people are killing young people and kids as young as 14 15 are fearing for their lives every day this book is really important to read and also as i say and keep stressing really constructive you'll come out of the other end of it feeling like okay there's something i can do Thank you also for listening to this special Mother Mother mini-series of changes. If you enjoyed the conversations, please do like, subscribe, get in touch on Instagram, all of that. Pass on the apps. I really appreciate it. We are working really hard also on the new series of changes dropping in the autumn. And like I said at the top of the conversation, we've got that big live show at the Roundhouse. So excited. So do check that out. Tickets are available for that from the website of the Roundhouse. If not, as I said, we start back in September and I really can't wait for you to be listening to the conversations then. Uh, There's some really special people lined up. My producer on Changes is Frank Palmer. Take care and I'll see you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.